All right, everyone. <clears throat> Wonderful to hear so many people here today, and thanks for tuning in online as well. We're continuing along in our series on the book of 2 Corinthians, and this morning we're going to be in chapter 8. To read the text for us, Erica, would you come on up? Our reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a couple of weeks ago was the Super Bowl, and I wonder if there are some NFL fans here in this room who watched that game, or perhaps some hip-hop fans who only watched the halftime show, um, which I've heard described by my father and my father-in-law as, and I quote, the worst halftime show I've ever seen, and I've heard described by members of my small group at Grace Toronto as, and I quote, the best halftime show in my life. So... Strong feelings. <laughs> I'd like to start this morning with a football story. And it's a football story that my brother Jeff made me aware of. So Jeff, kudos to you. Thank you very much. It's the story of a young Canadian athlete named Laurent Duvernay-Tardif. Now, Laurent Duvernay-Tardif played as an offensive lineman for the Kansas City Chiefs two years ago during Super Bowl 54. And he was actually on the field of play in the last play of the night as the seconds of the game clock ticked down to zero and the confetti cannons exploded over the arena, signaling that his team, the Kansas City Chiefs, had won Super Bowl 54. 
Duvernay Tardif threw his arms around their MVP quarterback as cameramen, family, and friends flooded onto the field, 62,000 fans cheering in the arena, and over 100 million people tuning in at home. It would have been a glorious moment. It's the kind of moment a lot of us dream about, being in something like that. Well, a couple days later, Duvernay Tardif was in a victory parade that was back in Kansas, attended by over a million people. And a few days after that, he went back to his hometown in Quebec, where he was met by yet another victory parade, having been the first Quebec-born athlete to win a Super Bowl ring. This is a young man who is on the top of his game. He's living the dream. He's at his peak athletic career. He's won the Super Bowl. He's making money. He is fit. Life is going well for him. And a couple weeks after Super Bowl 54, do you know where Duvernay Tardif found himself? He was in a Quebec long-term care facility, wearing PPE, going door to door, handing out medication, taking blood samples, and inserting catheters. You see, Duvernay Tardif in 2018 had actually completed medical school at McGill. This is a very talented young man. But before he had finished his residency, um, he was drafted for the NFL. Now, after Super Bowl 54, only a couple weeks after the end of Super Bowl 54, COVID-19 came to North America. And Duvernay Tardif decided to put his NFL career on hold so that he could pour himself into fighting against the virus. So in a matter of weeks, we have this six foot five, 320 pound athlete trading the shouts of 62,000 adoring fans for the presence of seniors who likely had no idea who he was. He exchanged his US $2.75 million salary for the wages of a part-term orderly. He traded honor, prestige, fame, money for the ability to go and be with the frail of society, the outskirts of society. And when he was interviewed about this decision, he said, I don't want to look back on my life 10 years from now and regret the choices that I made. This is exactly an image of what Jesus Christ has done for each of us. Verse 9 in our text this morning says, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus Christ was enthroned in heaven, surrounded by angels and archangels, constantly praising him, singing his praises. And he looked on humanity and saw that we were each infected with sin, that we were bedridden by our infirmity, unable to walk in the freedom for which God created us. And Jesus was moved by compassion. He laid aside his royal splendor. He was born as a frail human being like you and like me. And he did this knowing full well that our cure would come at the very cost of him taking our disease upon himself and suffering its fatal consequences. And yet he was pleased to do this. He was pleased to enter this poverty because he knew through his poverty, we would be made rich. We would inherit forgiveness from God. We would inherit salvation. 
we would be reconciled to God, that we would inherit, we'd receive the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. We would be guaranteed a resurrected body in a resurrected cosmos. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Through the poverty of Jesus, we have become rich indeed. As I think back on uh, Levant Duvernay Tardif, I have to imagine that there were some patients in that long-term care facility who perhaps as a consequence of, of their age or just some confusion in their mind were resisting his treatments, right? They were unaware that they needed help and they were resisting his generosity. And I wonder if there's some of us in this room who are behaving similarly towards Jesus, the physician. Generosity can't be forced upon someone It needs to be willingly received. And so I wonder what it would look like for us in this room to open up our hearts, to open our hands, to receive the generosity of Jesus. In our passage for today, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is focusing on the generosity of Jesus and how that generosity should influence the way that we live our lives. And the main point that Paul wants us to take away from this passage is that Jesus has been generous to you and therefore you can be generous too. Jesus has been generous to you and therefore you can be generous too. The first section of our passage, if we turn to it now, um, begins with Paul lifting up the Macedonian churches as an example of generosity. He lifts them up as an example to inspire other Christians about these generous Macedonians. Now, in order for us to understand sort of what's going on in this first section of the letter, I think some historical context is helpful. So, during the reign of Emperor Claudius, the Roman Emperor Claudius, who reigned between the years 41 and 54 AD, there was a massive famine which swept through the ancient Near East. And it seems that this famine in particular struck the region of Judea with particular severity. And so all of a sudden we have these Jewish Christian churches in Judea which are suffering immensely as a consequence of the famine. And the Apostle Paul starts to travel around to the various different churches in the Greco-Roman world and he, he collects an offering which is going to be sent back and used to buy food and supplies to relieve the plight of these Jewish Christians. And primarily the churches he was gathering from were Gentile churches. So there was a transfer from the Gentiles to the Jewish Christians during this time. There were a group of churches in the regions of Macedonia. So these would be the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And these churches, even though they were quite poor themselves, they were eager to contribute to the relief of the saints back in Judea. And so that's kind of the context that that Paul's talking about here, praising the generosity of these churches as they seek to relieve the burden of the Jewish Christians. And there's a few things, I think, in particular that we can draw from the example of the Macedonian churches. The first thing is that there's a bit of a paradox going on. Even though the Macedonian churches were quite poor, physically poor, materially poor, they were still rich. Paul says. They had an an inward spiritual richness. If we look at verse 2, Paul talks about their poverty. He says that they were, um, there was a severe test of affliction 
and that they had extreme poverty. So if we read about Paul's missionary journey to the Macedonian churches, you can read about it in Acts 16 and Acts 17, we see that those churches were persecuted harshly when they began to follow Jesus. And so Paul is saying that, you know, these churches are being persecuted, and as a consequence of that persecution and some other factors, they're really poor. Severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. And so we hear a situation like that, we might be excused for thinking that the Macedonian churches would begin to turn inward. You know, they begin to sort of focus on themselves and their own healing. They might start, you know, burning the furniture to keep the house warm, so to speak. But that's not how they respond. Instead, they overflow with an abundance of joy. And they overflow with generosity. It's a paradox. We have this church that is being persecuted. They're extremely poor. And yet, they respond with joy and generosity. And so how does that come about? Well, I think for us the key is in verse 1. That the churches of Macedonia were experiencing the grace, the favor, the generosity of God. And that that had made all the difference in their outlook on life. To illustrate this point, I'd like to remind us of one of the parables that Jesus told. Um, It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. And so a parable, it's kind of like a fable. It's not a true story, but it's intended to communicate a universal truth. And in the parable of the unforgiving servant, as the story goes, there's a king who has a number of servants underneath of him. And the king wishes to settle his accounts with his various servants. And there's one servant in particular who owes the king a massive debt. Uh, He owes him 10,000 bags of gold. Each bag of gold would be worth 20 years labor for a day laborer. So the point is that the sum that this servant owes is absurd. You know, I mean, in modern terms, think hundreds of millions or billions of dollars that he owes the king. And when the king comes to him and says, it's time for you to repay the debt, the servant falls on his knees and begs for patience. He says, please be patient with me. I will repay you. The king is moved to have compassion on this servant and he forgives the debt in its entirety. Forgives a debt of hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. Later that day, the servant who's just been forgiven encounters another servant. And this servant owes the forgiven servant uh, about a hundred small silver coins, a few thousand dollars. And the servant who owes the money falls on his knees and says, please be patient with me. I will repay you. Now, Jesus is being very intentional here because he wants to set us up to expect how do we think this forgiven servant is going to react? He's just been forgiven hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And now how is he going to react to this other servant who has, you know, a very tiny little debt against him? We expect that the act of generosity he experienced from the king is going to affect his behavior towards his fellow servant. But the gut punch of Jesus' parable is that's not how he behaves. He begins to choke the other servant and says, I'm going to put you in jail until you pay back every penny you owe me. And the original audience was supposed to react with anger at that servant because he should have altered his behavior, having having been the recipient of such generosity and such forgiveness himself. 
And the point is, the reason I share that regarding the Macedonian churches, they have been the recipient of the scandalous generosity of God. And as a consequence, they too are generous. It changes the way that they live their life. So even though they're poor, even though they're persecuted, they overflow with joy and generosity, having been the recipients of God's generosity for them. The second thing I think we can draw from the Macedonians is the fact that their contribution was not an obligation. They counted it as a privilege. If we look in verse 4, they begged Paul for the favor of contributing to the relief of the saints. So this wasn't something they felt commanded to do. It was something they felt privileged to do. Before I came to work uh, on staff at Grace Toronto, I served for nine years with a campus Christian ministry called Power to Change Students. I worked for five years at McGill and four years at the University of Toronto. And during that time, my salary was entirely support-based. And that means there were a number of individuals and churches who gave generously of their own funds so that I could dedicate my full time to being on campus sharing the gospel with students. One of the beautiful things I think about um, this kind of partnership is that when I was on campus and I saw any kind of fruit for the gospel, I knew that fruit wasn't just between myself and God, but it was a fruit that was shared amongst a whole team of people. And I thought that was a wonderful thing. I was on the phone with one of my supporters a couple of weeks ago, and she said to me, Graham, it was, it, it was a privilege to support you when you were on campus. And I think what she was communicating by that is that she felt privileged to have been able to touch the lives of young people by investing in the work that I was doing. And I wonder today, are there any causes that you would feel privileged if God used you to have an impact in that area? Are there any causes you would feel privileged if God used you to have an impact? Perhaps you would feel privileged if God used you to provide reliable sources of food, medical care, and education to a child in the developing world. I wonder if you would consider looking at Compassion Canada. Perhaps you would feel privileged if God used you to get a COVID-19 vaccine into the arm of someone in the developing world whose government can't afford to provide it for them. I wonder if you would look at UNICEF Canada. Perhaps you would feel privileged to be used by God to resist sex trafficking in our city, in the city of Toronto. I wonder if Rahab Ministries would interest you. Perhaps you would feel privileged to be used by God to support the people of Ukraine against this evil invasion. And I wonder if when you go home, you could Google different ways to support Ukraine. Perhaps you'd feel privileged by God to be used to spread the gospel to areas of the world that haven't heard about him yet. I wonder if you'd look up missionaries that you might support. And we could go on and on, but I wonder if there is something God has laid on your heart that you'd feel privileged to be used by him to have an impact. The third area I'd like for us to draw from the Macedonian church is that their gift was not just financial. They gave their whole selves. In verse 6, Paul expresses his surprise that the Macedonians gave themselves first to the Lord and then, by the will of God, 
to us. And the idea here is that they, they dedicated not just their funds, but their whole lives in service. I find this to be a really encouraging word because I know that there are some people in the church today or, or tuning in online who find themselves in a situation of limited means. Could be a person who's retired, a student, someone whose income is restricted at this point. And I think it's an encouragement that generosity is not just measured in dollars and cents. The Macedonian churches, yes, they gave some money to support the Jewish Christians in Judea. It was likely a very small amount, given their situation. But on top of that gift, they, I have to assume they were praying for the churches in Judea. And I know for a fact that Paul says they intended to send some representatives with Paul on the journey to support him along the way. And so I think generosity, more than simply being about money, is about a disposition of our heart. A heart that is directed towards the blessing of others. Generosity is about a heart that is directed towards the blessing of others. And so perhaps compared to others in the church, your giving or my giving might be small by comparison. But what are some other ways that you might express generosity towards others? Could it be the way that you use your prayer time? Could it be the way that you use your dorm on campus? Could it be the way that you use your volunteer time or your skills in the service of others? Now, before we move on to the next section of our text today, I think it's important to pause to make a bit of a caveat. Paul uses a line here that I think some people find concerning with justifiable reasons. He says that the churches in Macedonia gave beyond their means. And I think some of us find that a bit alarming. I remember hearing the story of, um, I've, I've heard the stories before, of Christian families who decided they wanted to be radically generous. And they gave away their children's RESP. And how that affected the children, you know, when they became college age. And, and how it affected their view of God. I've, I, I've had um, connections with my own family, with people in my grandparents' generation who went to serve as missionaries overseas in Africa and Asia, and they put their kids in international schools where they would see them, you know, maybe once every couple years for a week or two. Is this the kind of radical generosity, the kind of giving beyond our means that Paul would endorse? I think it's important to read our passage today in the context of the rest of the New Testament. Because we know in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, Paul says, if anyone does not provide for their own household, they have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. So our generosity, first and foremost, needs to be for our children providing for them. It needs to be for our elderly parents and others in our household. And if the Macedonian churches had given beyond their means to the point that they were not providing for their own children or, or that their, their seniors in their midst were not being provided for, for, Paul would not endorse that kind of behavior. I think it's also important to remember that at times the Bible is descriptive and at other times the Bible is prescriptive. And this is one of those descriptive moments. Paul is describing the radical generosity of the Macedonians. He actually doesn't prescribe that type of generosity, even for the Corinthian church. Because when we look down in verse 13, 
Paul says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. And so I don't say these things to diminish the radical generosity of the Macedonians. I just say it to put it in its context. That being said, I think as a community, Christians are called to be very generous. We're called to be generous until the point that it actually changes how we live our lives. Our vacations look different. The things that we buy look different because we've been generous. The point of this section where Paul talks about the Macedonian church, the whole point of bringing them up as an example is to highlight the fact that this Macedonian church had so experienced the generosity of Jesus that even though they were poor, even though they were persecuted, they could be generous too. And now Paul turns his attention from the example of the Macedonians towards the Corinthians. And so let's move along in the passage. Paul moves on to encourage the church in Corinth to complete the act of grace that they'd begun. We see that in verse 6. And so again, a little bit of historical context is helpful here. In the last letter of the Corinthians that we have in our Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, we see that the Corinthian church, like the Macedonian church, had heard about the needs in Judea, and they had committed themselves to collecting money to send to those Christians in Judea. So they had actually pledged, you know, we want to contribute towards this work as well. But for some reason, it's an unspecified reason, we don't know why, the Corinthian church did not follow through on that commitment. And so in this section of the letter, Paul is encouraging them to complete what they had started, to be people of integrity, to fulfill the pledge that they had made. And in particular, in verse 7, Paul highlights a number of areas where the Corinthian church excels, particularly some spiritual gifts that they might have seen in their assemblies together. And he he challenges them, he invites them to excel at generosity. Because in verse 8, Paul points out that generosity is a way that we can know that our love is genuine. I think that this is a really important word for us in a city like Toronto, because I've been around on campuses long enough, I've been in the city long enough to know that students and adults, and well, sorry, students are adults, but students and working people in Toronto can have the ability to talk a really big game about issues of justice. But talk is cheap, and actions speak much louder than words. And so Paul is calling for us to be a people who put our money where our mouth is and to put our love into action. And so Grace Toronto, I want us to consider what would it look like for us as a community to excel at generosity? What would it look like for us as individuals to excel at generosity? And by raising this question, I don't mean to imply that our church is not already a generous place. In fact, I think if Paul were writing about our church, there would be a great deal that he would find praiseworthy. There's a great deal of generosity we've seen here. We've, you know, we've had the privilege of bringing refugee families to Canada. That's a privilege. We've had a privilege in our community of seeing children adopted into families. We've had the privilege in our community of 
I, goodness, I, I know some, some members here are just, they work really hard and they're very generous with their money, giving towards the church and giving towards charitable causes. I know we have people in this church who are prayer warriors behind the scene. We have people who generously volunteer their skills and their time. This is a very generous church. And yet, to go back to a sports analogy, even the best teams will step back and study the tape at the end of a game. And so I think it's worthwhile for us as we leave the service today to consider what would it look like for my family to excel at generosity? What would it look like for our church to excel at generosity? Because you see, true love is not just about words. It's about action. And Jesus Christ is God's concrete action of love to each of us. Because Jesus has been generous to us, we can be generous too. I'd like to close with a reading of a hymn, which is called God, uh, God Who's Giving Knows No Ending. And I think this hymn perfectly summarizes the point that Paul has been trying to get across to the Corinthians and trying to get across to us today. And so uh, Tarek is going to help me with the reading of this hymn. Tarek, would you come up? And then we'll conclude and move to Q&A. This is the poem. God whose giving knows no ending from your rich and endless store. Nature's wonder, Jesus' wisdom, costly cross, grave-shattered door. Gifted by you, we turn to you, offering up ourselves in praise. Thankful songs shall rise forever gracious donor of our days. Skills and time are ours for pressing toward the goal of Christ your Son. All at peace and health and freedom, races joined, the church made one. Now direct our daily labor, lest we strive for self alone. Born with talents, make us servants, fit to answer at your throne. Treasure, too, you have entrusted, gained through powers your grace conferred. Ours to use for home and kindred, and to spread the gospel word. Open wide our hands in sharing, as we heed Christ's ageless call, healing, teaching, and reclaiming, serving you by loving all. Amen. So, we are now at the point of the service, um, which is more interactive. And if you have a question that you'd like to, um, to pose to me, you can send it as a text to the number that we have um, or a comment you'd like to make on anything you've heard today. And Tarek is going to be helping me if, if we do have any questions coming in. Uh, there are no questions today, Graham. I think everyone wants to give away their money. <laughs> <laughs> you, are, you were very compelling, I think. No qu- okay, well, if you send a question later, uh, Tarek will... Uh, will help, help me find it and I will get back to you. So if you didn't have time to get it in now, that's okay. Thanks, Graham. If you have questions, you can also email Graham at gracetoronto.ca and he'll be sure to get back to you. I know this is a fairly complex topic and we want to help you work through it.